just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we have to come and worship you and have you guide and lead us in what we're going to learn. We ask your, your grace as you show us what it is. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. First Kings chapter 11. The first, and we're going to be starting at verse 9. We, we looked at the very first part of this chapter where Solomon's wives led him astray, led him into the worship of idols. And that was something his dad didn't do. For all the bad things that his dad did, murder, adultery, and those type of things, he always had his heart to follow God and repent. Solomon is going to drift away completely from God and go into idol worship. And verse 9, we look at the consequences of his sin. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned from the Lord, God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods, but he kept not that which the Lord commanded. Wherefore the Lord said unto Solomon, For as much as this is done of you, and you have not kept my covenant, and my statutes which I have commanded you, I will surely rend the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Notwithstanding, in your days I will not do it for David your father's sake, but I will rend it out of the hand of your son. Howbeit I will not rend it away all the kingdom, but I will give one, one tribe unto your son for David my servant's sake and for Jerusalem's sake which I have chosen." So here is the consequence for Solomon's actions. Uh, he followed after God's and God got angry with him. And you know, sometimes we think God is, doesn't get angry because he is, he is just a loving God. God can get and does get angry with us and discipline follows when he is angry. And Solomon's going to feel that wrath and he says, and it points out that God had personally talked to Solomon two times. Right? Solomon wasn't just depending on the Bible or prophets. God had directly spoken to him, which even angered God more. It's like, okay, I personally talked to you, and you're not listening. Because Have you ever heard somebody say, well, if God just talked to me, or if he just did what he did in the apostles' day, or if, it, if I could have been with Jesus, I wouldn't, or you know, if I had seen the things of children of Israel. No, we would have acted just like they did in rebellion and frustra frustrating God. Solomon did it. He has talked with God twice, and God has reminded him, I've talked with you twice. You're not, you're not uh, getting out of this with by saying I didn't know. And it says, he commanded him not to go after other gods. It almost sounds like God knew what he was going to do and kept warning him. How many times does God do that to us? He knows what's coming our way, and he gives us warning through the scriptures, through, through lessons that we have, whatever. He gives us warnings. By the way, this is coming. Beware. And then so many times we fall right into the trap that Satan's laying for us, even though God has given us pre-warning. And that's been true in my life. Every time I come into something, God has prepared me for where I'm at at that time. If I just think about it. I think about the messages I heard. I think about what I've been reading in the Bible. And sometimes I'm listening and I get through without a problem. Other times I fall flat on my face and realize afterwards <laughs> that God had already planned and prepared, for, prepared me for it. God always prepares us for the test that he's going to give us. A good teacher always does. A good teacher always pre prepares their people for the test that's going to come. They may not tell you when the test is going to come, pop quizzes, that kind of stuff, but you're always prepared for the test if you've been studying, if you've been listening. The problem is how many times are we not prepared because we weren't, li we weren't listening, we weren't studying, uh, we weren't paying any attention, and then we look at God and go, God, it's all your fault. I, didn't, I, didn't, I was surprised by this test. I didn't know this was coming. And God says, well, I gave you plenty of teaching, gave you plenty of planning. And it says, you have done this. You have not kept my commandment nor my statutes, which I commanded you. I will surely rent the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Oh, what the, the punishment that he got. He lost the kingdom. 
but not at his time. God is going to show him mercy too. He says, you're not going to lose it. Your son's going to lose it. Now, I don't know how merciful that is. Okay, Solomon deserved to lose it, but his son, Jeroboam, uh, Rehoboam, is going to lose it. And, you know, is that really fair? Well, God knew that Rehoboam was even worse than his father. All right? He is even nastier than his father. And God does this oftentimes where he says, not in your day, but in the future. The kingdom will be taken not in your day, but in three generations from now. When Ham sinned and, and saw Noah naked and doing whatever it was, he thought it was the funniest thing in the world and went out and talked to his brothers, and the curse fell on Ham's son Canaan. You know, cursed be Canaan. And it's kind of an interesting thing when you look at it. Why? Because God knew how bad Canaan was, and Canaan was much worse than his father. And this is true so often. In our next generation, the, the children are either much worse than we are, if we're, if we're on the downward side, or if we're following God, they can be much better than we are. Righteousness has the same effect on people, where you get better and better with each generation. And I've watched my kids and watched what they do for God. And I'm looking forward to what my grandkids are going to be raised up to do. You know, and hope that they follow suit and, go, and they go to the next generation. Five, six generations of people following God would be wonderful in the family. But in Solomon's case, he doesn't follow after his dad's ways. And his son's not going to follow after even Solomon's ways. And he's going to lose a large chunk of the, of the kingdom. But God shows mercy also. He says, I'm not taking the entire kingdom from you. And for what? He goes, for David's sake, I'm giving you one tribe. And for Jerusalem's sake, I'm giving you a tribe. So they're going to get two tribes left to them. We're going to find out that it's Judah and Benjamin, David's tribe, and Saul's tribe, surprisingly, make up the southern kingdom of Judah. And he says, because of your father's sake, even though you've been disobedient, I made a promise to David that his seed would sit on the throne forever. I will not take away the kingdom from you. It's kind of an amazing thing. God's mercy tempers his judgment, always. And this is an amazing thing. that When we disobey, God's mercy tempers his anger and judgment. And that's great for us, because God looks at us and says, you're still my son. You're still my daughter. I've adopted you. I'm not totally throwing you away. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make what you've done equivalent to what you deserve. But yet he holds back. Because what do we ultimately deserve? We ultimately deserve to go to hell. Or at the very least, to be taken home to heaven. And yet God says, no, we're just going to punish you. We're going to give you a spanking and let you, let you uh, go a little longer. Let you keep moving forward. And this is what's happening to Solomon. Solomon deserves to lose the kingdom. But God says, because of David's righteousness, you're not losing the kingdom. Your dynasty will go on. What a blessing. And how many times has God done that to each one of us? We've disobeyed. We've been maybe even purposely disobedient. And God doesn't throw us away. I love it that he does that in the scriptures. He didn't throw David away. He didn't throw Solomon completely away. He's not even really going to throw Jeroboam completely away, or Rehoboam completely away. He's going to be merciful to him. He was merciful to Abraham, who kept doing things wrong as well. He was, you know, Moses, up until it was time to enter into the promised land, he let and gave Mo Moses grace. Uh, over and over again. He gave him grace and mercy and let him lead the people. Even though his anger toward the people and God got him in trouble a few times, God gave him the grace and mercy. This is the beauty of how God treats us. He does not give his people what they deserve. Uh, now those who are not his children will eventually get what they deserve. David's big complaint in the Psalms was, God, why, why do the heathen get so much so much blessings, and I seem to get, get uh, picked on all the time. And God says, they're going to get it. In the end, 
God's judgment and righteousness shines forth. In this lifetime it does too, even though we don't usually recognize it. And I've said this over and over. Sometimes we look at people that are lost and seem to have everything to their benefit. And yet, when you really get close to their lives or listen to them stay, and they're going to th say things like, I'd give everything away if I could just be happy. I'd give everything away if I could just feel at peace. And we look at them and say, wow, they've got everything. They've got the big mansion on the hillside. They've got servants. They've got cars. You know, they've got money. They've got power and prestige. And they're saying, it's not, it doesn't satisfy. It doesn't meet my needs. And we don't necessarily know that. Uh, one of the pastors that I listened to yesterday was talking about how very big stars had said things that would, if I could just have a day of happiness or peace, it would be worth it. And you wonder, they've got everything, but you can't buy happiness. You can't buy peace. And sometimes we think, well, if I just had all that stuff, I'd be happy. No, we wouldn't. We'd be just like them. We'd be miserable because stuff won't make us happy. If we can't find our contentment in God, we won't be content in anything, with anything else. We might have temporary happiness. We might have temporary moments of peace. But really, when, when knowing God is where our peace and happiness comes from, our joy, that deep joy that keeps us moving forward comes from God. Solomon has walked away from all that. He's going to lose the kingdom for his son. Uh, and he says, you know, I'm not going to take it all away from you, but I'm going to give you two tribes. <laughs> one for your dad and one for Jerusalem's sake. What a precious. God puts high value on Jerusalem. More so, and it's hard to imagine why God puts that value on Jerusalem, but it has a special place in his heart. So much so that he calls the church the new Jerusalem when, when the heaven and earth, new heaven and earth come along. That we will be called Jerusalem. He has great blessing on it and great, great love for it. And sometimes I wonder, God, why do, you, why, do you, why do you love people to begin with? Why do you love Jerusalem? Why, you know, and it's not for us to know, but he has his reasons. And Satan's love is for Babylon. That is where all the old religions have their roots in. Is all false religion has their roots in Babylon. Babylon is, was established after the flood and is where Satan has had his headquarters. And we, even so, the Babylon is used all through the scripture saying, Babylon will rise up. Revelation talks about Babylon rising up. And most people think that it's a spiritual reference. I really truly believe that Babylon, the city, will be where the Antichrist sets up in his rule. Not not the Roman Empire and everything, because Babylon is where Satan has always set up his kingdom. I could be wrong. I know most scholars believe that it is going to be the Roman Empire and it's going to be probably Rome. Uh, but I really do believe it's going to be Babylon itself, because that is where it's, uh, all the evil religion started. I just can't see what God sees in this. He had problems back then. To me, our problems are just as bad. That's why we're close to the end. This is one thing that more and more people are starting to talk about, how close are we to the end times? Apostles thought they were close to the end times. And all they had to deal with Rome, and Rome was pretty bad. And Rome was not a good place. And how far we have to get to be like the days of Noah, I don't know. But we seem to be getting pretty close to that. But we're really not that much different than the Roman Empire and the Greek Empire before they fell. In their days, they were doing what was right in their own eyes and, and following their own ways. Solomon did the same thing in his day. He started following what was right in his own eyes. So I do believe, I believe we're close. But a good, solid revival around the world could put us back backwards again, just like it did with the Roman Empire. I never thought I would, I never thought I would ever experience this right now. I mean, to me, there's not, a, there's not too many people at all that thought they would experience what we're experiencing. But just be aware that historically, we're not all that bad yet. All right, Rome. If you read the Roman papers and reports and just substituted, substituted our cities and our, our politicians, you'd be swearing you're reading a common current newspaper. Homosexuality reigned in, in Rome. Uh, uh, prostitution reigned in Rome. Uh, evil reigned in Rome. 
and just as it's doing in our day. Uh, so in yes and no, we are bad. We're not the worst yet in history and don't know how far we have to go to get to the days of Noah when God said enough is enough. But we're fast getting there. If there's not a revival, we will get there very quickly. Because that's one thing I do understand now. When I read the Bible, like what you say, it could be now. Because the things that are... Yeah, that's the thing. Nothing is new. Just some of the some of the ways we deliver things are new. Pornography now is being delivered by by the internet, so you don't have to go out to the downtown red light district or anything to to participate. But in Roman days, the shops put pornographic statues and pictures all over the place. You you did not take your children downtown if you didn't want them to see that kind of images, because everything was pornographic in that day. The plays were pornographic. The, the sports were, were participated in, you know, completely naked. Uh, all, you know, most, of the, most of the theater was done pretty much naked. It's not, that's how it was back then. So we think it's bad now. And it is getting bad now. I mean, you can't walk down the street anymore without somebody walking past you that's practically naked and is considered okay. So we're not that far behind them at this point. But it's not, where we're at now is not new. It's really waking me up and realizing this is what, it was, like you said, like I say, it was worse back then, but it's coming back. It's coming back. This is why I say over and over, people say we're going to a post-Christian world. We're actually going back to a pre-Christian world, which technically, if you want to say post-Christian, it's fine because it, you know, it's the same, as long as they define it the same, it's what things were like before Christianity came to power. And we're going to keep going backwards without a revival. And this is why it's important for us as Christians to pray for revival in our lives and in the people that we know so that we can turn the world upside down as the, as the uh, disciples did. Because back in their day, they thought it was the end times. I mean, pornography is running rampant, uh, murder is running rampant, nobody cared for life. They're going, we're in the days of Noah. Just as we are doing the same thing, we're saying we are in the days of Noah because it looks like we are. But if you look through history, we're no worse than any of the great empires were. The only problem I see here is I don't know who's rising up to take our place if, we, if God does, was to tarry. In the past, it was always somebody else in the wings to, to bring righteousness out and, and goodness out. If there's a revival, God can, God can extend this out a lot longer He's the one in charge, but just we want to be aware, as bad as it is, it's not the worst that it has been in history yet, and it definitely isn't up to the standards of Noah yet. We want to just be aware, I mean, because you're going to hear a lot of pastors say the world has never been as bad as it is today outside of the days of Noah. They don't know their history. <laughs> All right? We are getting bad, but we're not as bad as the end of Rome. We're not as bad as the end of... Uh, Greeks were not as bad as the ending days of the Egyptian empire. You know, we are following the same path that all the great empires have followed. We could end up with another, another great kingdom out there, or we could be at the end times. I think we're at the end times. If we take the statue that Nebuchadnezzar was say, saw, Rome was the last empire, and it was fractured and, and broken up with the toes of clay and, and iron. Uh, it was the last great kingdom, so there is no other nation to follow by that prophecy. Now, did God continue playing with the toes in the iron for a lot longer yet? Yes. Uh, will he? Don't know. But revival would have to set in to keep us going. Without revival, we're headed to the days of Noah. All right? With revival, who knows how long God will put it off. And now I've got grandkids, I'm kind of mixed. You know, I'd like to have revival and let, let them live in a nice place for, but if it's not, then I want it to end now while they're young. <laughs> I don't want them to get older and have to deal with it. So I'm kind of in a mixed place. God send revival or, or come now. Verse 14. And the Lord stirred up an adversary unto Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. He was of the king's seed in Edom. And it came to pass when David was in Edom, and Joab the captain of the host was gone up to bury the slain, after he had smitten every male in Edom, for six months did Joab remain there with all of Israel until he had cut off every male in Edom, 
that Hadad fled, and he and certain Edomites of his father's servants with him to go unto Egypt, Hadad being a yet a little child. And they arose out of Midian and came to Paran, and they took men with them out of Paran, and they came to Egypt, and Pharaoh king of Egypt, which gave him a house, and appointed him victuals, and gave him land. And Hadad found great favor in the sight of Pharaoh, so that he gave him to wife the sister of his own wife, the sister of Tephanes the queen. And the sister of Tephanes bare him Gidnubah his son, whom Tephanes weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Gidnubah was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. And when Hadad heard that in Egypt that David slept with his fathers and that Joab, the captain of the host, was dead, Hadad said to Pharaoh, Let me depart, that I may go to my own country. Then Pharaoh said unto him, But what have you lacked with me? And that, behold, you seek to go among your own country. And he answered, Nothing, howbeit, let me go anywise. All right. What we're going to see here is Solomon's sins... And in this chapter, we're going to see God raise up three enemies for Solomon. How many times when we sin does God bring in adversaries for us that make life even more miserable? We're already feeling miserable because we're under conviction, and then God brings problems into our lives. And sometimes there are people that bring these problems. And God is going to bring people to give Solomon trouble. Remember, up to this time, Solomon has had peace. He reigns everything from the, from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates and down into the, to right to the edge of Egypt. He is in control of everything. He has been at peace. He has not got, had to go to war. His father conquered all that land and handed it over to him and said, son, this is yours. And all he's had to do is keep it. And now... Because of his sin, God stirs up an adversary, Hadad the Edomite. If you want to read about this in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14, we read about David conquering the Edomites and putting them into subjectivity against him. He did not destroy all of them. Obviously, according to this, Joab went through and killed all the men he could get hold of, trying to wipe out the Edomites. Did God tell them to? There's no indication that God told them to wipe them out. Should they have? That's I don't know. I'm not going to second guess them. I'm going to second guess David and Joab on that one. But they went out to kill all the Edomites, but they did not get Hadad, who was part of the royal family. So he was sent off to be rescued. Sent with a bunch of slaves saying, okay, take my child out, get him, get him out of the country. Get him out of David's country, which pretty much meant that he, if he was going to go into the then known world, he was going to Egypt. Uh, because north of, the, north of Israel was barbarians, as far as they were concerned. East of Israel, at this particular time, was not a really well known. They knew, that, they knew of India, but India was considered barbarians. And they were aware of the Chinese across the mountains, but they were hard to get to. That would, all of that was way too far to go. Spices came from China and, and, and Asia across the mountains, and, and that area stayed separate from Europe because of the little sh small mountains that we know of as the Himalayans and everything that, that are not easy to get through. There's passes, but they prevented anybody from Europe from really getting into them, and that area was known to them even back then. And we think about how many places have been discovered by Europeans. Marco Polo discovered the Orient. Well, no, they knew about it all the way back here. Uh, they just didn't make a big deal out of it because it was a long trip. They knew about India. They knew about these places. Uh, in our history, we're looking and we're finding out that many, many different countries visited the New World before Columbus got here. Now, none of them colonized the New World other than the Native American Indians that came across the the land bridge over, over Asia, over from Asia, but nobody that other than them ever colonized this area. But we have seen signs that Hebrew people were here, that the Polynesians were here, that many of the Asian countries were here, uh, the uh, Danes and the uh, Vikings were here, 
Um, some um, African countries were here. <laughs> all right. Uh, this was not totally unknown, and history doesn't report all of those visits. Just as history does not report all the scientific in, in, uh, knowledge that was gained and lost over the years. When, when these big nations would, and empires would fall, they were conquered basically by, bar, by barbarians, people with little intelligence or caring about the studies of what these countries did. And so they destroyed their libraries, they destroyed their sciences, and then we had to learn everything all over again. The Egyptians were using batteries and electricity and running water through, through pumps in long, long, long ago, 4,000 years ago. Uh, the Greeks knew the exact size of the earth and that it was round. The, most of the uh, Arab nations that looked at the stars knew that the earth was round and they knew the size of the earth through mathematics. Nobody had gone around it, but everybody knew by science that these things were true. And even in the dark ages, the educated world knew that the world was round. When Columbus went to sail around the world, he already knew by mathematics and navigation that the world was round. Now his uneducated sailors didn't. Then most of his officers didn't believe him, even though they were learning navigation and, and could see the signs, but most of them weren't uh, really good with their mathematics. But the educated people have always known these things because they were trained. The uneducated person who just worked his farm and really didn't care, you know, I don't care if the earth's round or not. All I know is that I like my, here's my, here's my town, my village is over there for me to sell my goods. When I need some things, I trade for it and I am happy. Uh, those merchants that want to go out someplace and bring some nice things, I like them, I trade with them, but I am happy being on my farm. And it wasn't so long ago, even in America, that that attitude was prevalent. All right? You had settlers all across the West that said, I've got my farm, that's all I need. You know, I've got the, the, the nearest town is, is uh, half a day's ride, and I'll go get what I need, and then I'll come back to my, my little town, and you would never convince them that the earth was round. They barely knew how to read, and they knew what they needed to do to survive. But all throughout history, the facts of the world being round have been known. The facts of how big the earth is have been known. You know, all of this stuff has going, been going on and been passed down through the ages. God probably told Adam and Eve this information as he walked with them in the garden. All right? he, he gave them the names of the, of the, of the uh, days that match up to the, to the planets in their order. Now, all kinds of wonderful things that are out there that have been out there. God put the gospel, the gospel message in the stars for people to watch the stars and, and see the promise of the Messiah and the deliverance of God's people. So God says you're without, you're without excuse. The Babylonians, the Persians, all studied the scars and knew, knew the constellations. And the constellations is amazingly, and this is something that tells us that God did it, the constellations are the same in every civilization. You know, all of them have the same set of con con star groupings. Yeah, because the sky would be different. But, but even if you think about that, why would you pick out the Big Dipper? I mean, we pick it out because we're showing the Big Dipper. But there's nothing there really to say this group of stars belongs together. This group of stars over here that's Orion belong together. You know, and those are the easy ones. Get, the, get cancer, which just has three stars in it, three or four stars in it, that have no pattern to show you that it's supposed to be, be a crab. And yet, everybody has that grouping of stars. You know, some of them are kind of, uh, the Big Dipper, Big Dipper kind of stands out. The Southern Cross really stands out in the sky because it is dark all around it. it is, you cannot mistake the Southern Cross for anything but a grouping of stars on the, if you go far enough south. And when I lived in Guam, we were just far enough south to see the Southern Cross at times. And it literally is a cross hanging in the sky in a dark spot. Wow. In a dark spot of the sky, there's a cross. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and that's about the only one that you could say, that one you can't miss. The Big Dipper, yeah. There's enough stars around it that if you wanted to ignore the big bright ones, you could, you could ignore it. But some of these ones make no sense. How did you come out with what you did, and why is it a grouping? Because God made it a grouping. 
so that he could tell his story about a virgin giving birth to a child that was going to redeem and become the Lion of Judah by the end of the time. And that is the Zodiac, starting at Virgo, ending at Leo. Starting at the virgin birth, leading to Leo. The duplicity of the, of the Godhead being shown by the Senator. All these powerful pictures that God says, here it is. You know, Orion stands with his foot over the head of the great serpent of the sky. Just what we're told of, this, the Messiah will come and crush the head of the serpent. You know, and it's right there in the sky. God put it all there for those who want to pay attention to it. Now, what has Satan done? He has totally messed up the picture. You know, he's turned it into from astronomy and God's message into astrology and trying to predict the future by the stars. And that is not what God put it there for. Yes, it does predict the future, but not, not our individual futures. So we look at what he has done. And here, Hadad the Edomite survives. He runs to Egypt. He flees to Egypt while he's a little child. And it says here, and this is a little, little context in here in verse 15 and 16. Joab had gone, stayed in, in Edom and was butchering all the men. And this is literally one of the reasons David got into trouble with God. He says, you're a man of blood. David did more than just go to war. It's one thing to kill people when you're in the middle of a combat. It's a whole other thing to do what, what Joab is doing here and going through the town and seeking out the males just to kill them. And he's an executioner. And we know that if you remember back when Joab, you know, we're studying David, Joab was not a nice guy. He had no problems killing people. If he thought you were his adversary, he killed you. you know, this is the type of man that Joab is, which is why when David died, he told Solomon, get rid of Joab. Now, Joab's an old, old man by that time, but he says, get rid of Joab before he starts his campaign against you and, and gathers up forces against you. Because David never could really get rid of Joab. Joab had command of the army and had a lot of allegiance to himself. Joab went, spent six months just going through all of Edom killing people, killing men. Uh, and like I said, there's nothing in the Bible that tells us that God said to do this. You know, it's just something David decided to do. We're going to exterminate Edom. That would be like a killer now. Huh? That would be like a killer now. Um, it would be more like genocide. This nation deserves to die, and we're going to kill out all of this nation. That's what David was participating. We would call it genocide in our, in our day and age. He's killing out all the males. By killing out all the males, then, then what they would take is the women would then become slaves and or concubines or wives uh, so that they also would not be building up a new generation of Edomites. So it's a serious, serious issue here. They're, they're looking to exterminate Edom. They didn't do it. So, and it says in, in, in uh, 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 8 that David annexed it. He put fortresses in Edom and basically put them under subjection. And one of the things about that I think I see in this is so many times do we take, Edom was a nation that should have been uh, put in, destroyed in the early days and yet they weren't. How many times do we try to put our sin in subjection and under control and captivity rather than killing it. And eventually it goes just what happens here. The sin that we put into captivity and in a prison comes roaring back with vengeance. Hadad is going to do that. He's going to come back and he's going to harass Solomon with the blessing of Pharaoh, who is still a fairly powerful, not a great nation at that time, but a powerful, powerful nation. And so Hadad makes it to Egypt, and Pharaoh takes a liking to him. For whatever reason, he takes a liking to him and feeds him, gives him a house, treats him like royalty. Basically, he, as Pharaoh's later going to say, I've made you like a son. Why do you want to leave it you know, toward the end of this? But he says he gives him all of this. He appoints him food. He appoints him a home. He gets so much favor. And this is kind of interesting. He gives him 
the sister of his wife to be his wife. Which makes me wonder, you know, about this marriage. How old this woman must have been to, you know, to be there because Pharaoh is king and he's coming in as a lad. Now, how old a lad? I don't know. It doesn't really tell us. But a lad usually means somebody younger than 12. Uh, he's been in Pharaoh's house for a while and then he gives him his wife's sister to marry. And his wife's sister bears him a child. And they give him the name Ginnibath, which means theft. Theft. Which means on his mind is the fact that David has, has stolen his kingdom away from him. Even to this point, he is remembering. And can you imagine how bitter this man must be? Must be? He's lost his kingdom. He's been driven out of his country. And yes, he's being blessed. And mo many of us know people who are being blessed, and yet they have deep bitterness in their heart for all that they think they've lost. He's been given a kingdom, basically. He's been given a home. He's living in a lap of royalty without having to really worry about ever being Pharaoh because they're not going to make him Pharaoh. He's got all the blessings of royalty, and yet he's unhappy because he doesn't have his kingdom and names his son theft. You know, it's an amazing, <laughs> amazing pro thing. How many times maybe do we do the same thing? We're being blessed, but we don't have exactly what we wanted. And we complained to God. God, uh, I know I'm blessed. I know you're giving me, but I don't have what I really want. And God, for listening carefully, God said, well, it's not good for you to have what you really want. You know, take what I've given you. But, you know, it's so easy for us as human beings to not be happy with what we have. That is why people who are not saved are never happy. They really aren't, because there's always something missing, in which, in which case it's God. They don't know what's missing, otherwise they turn to God. But they know their wealth isn't doing it. They know their, their possessions aren't doing it. And they're always thinking, if only. If only I had taken this path rather than this path. And all of us have probably done that in, in, in our lifetime. You know, if there is a big decision that we made in our lifetime, and I remember I have one of those. There was a big decision, and I chose a path. And I'm glad I chose the path that I did. But I also, at, at one point in my life, wondered, wow, if I had taken this path, my life would be totally different. It, was, it involved the military and it my, involved going into the academy. And I go, if I had taken this path when I was 40, you know, 2, 43 years old, I was thinking, boy, I'd be able to retire with officer's pay. What a difference my life would have been if I had made that path. But it wasn't the path God put me on. You know, so we never want to look back and say, wow, I'm so sad about that because it can get us into trouble. God put us on a path, we've made decisions, and we can never go back and unchange our path anyway. Whatever we have chosen, good or bad, is the path we've chosen, and God is using that for good. And we can never go back and say, well, I just wish I had taken the other path. That would make life totally miserable. Her dad's living in that miserable. If I'd only not been able, if I'd only been old enough to, to, to fight against David and keep my country, if only I hadn't been driven out, He'd been dead and not alive, but he's living in regret. And so much so he names his kid Theft. And it's kind of, kind of a strange name. Uh, how would you like to call your, here Theft, come, come home Theft. Like a dog. <laughs> Time to come home for dinner. Uh, now, this is really interesting in verse 20. And the sister of Tephens bear him Genubath his son, whom Tepens weaned in Pharaoh's house, and Genubath was in Pharaoh's household among the sons of Pharaoh. When I read this, I found nothing in any commentary to verify what I've even said. Most of them ignore this verse. Every commentary I look has ignored this verse. It looks to me that Hadad's wife died in childbirth. Because the one doing the weaning is Pharaoh's wife. The, her sister 
is doing the weaning. And he gets to play with Pharaoh's children. Now, I can't prove this, but it looks to me when I read this that his wife died. And there's no reference to her anywhere. Matter of fact, she's not even named when he marries her. It's just Tiffany's sister. But it's just strange to me that it wasn't his sister's, now, Tiffany's sister weaned him. All right? So I'm looking at this and I'm going, did she die? Yeah, why would they write it like that? Yeah, it's just, it's just a little note in there. It's almost like, and this would also support, you know, I'm really treating you as my son. I've taken your son as my grandson, as my grandchild, brought him into my, into my kingdom, you know, into my kingdom. He's playing with my, your sons, and my wife has been taking care of him, and she has been weaning him. This translation says there, Jeremiah lived with Pharaoh's own children. Right. Does it say about weaning? No. At the very first part of it? Yeah. So, just something, not that it's really important, but it also loosens his attachment to Egypt. He doesn't have a wife there, he just has a son, which can go with him or stay with Pharaoh to be protected. So, you know, and this is one of those things, when we have a family to think about, sometimes our decisions are much different when we have a family to think about than they would be without it. And that is why uh, Paul said, you, I wish you were all like me. If God tells me to go, you know, pick up and move, I just pick up and move. I don't have to, you know, get, keep my wife happy and all of that. And there's times when, as men, we do things because we want to keep our wives happy. And we go, I really think I should be doing that. And she says, no, I won't be happy if you do that. And then we have to make a very hard decision. Do I follow where God really wants me or do I just sit back until she says yes? And this is something that is very important. And it is a very important thing for a man to keep his wife happy. And Paul even said it in the scriptures. He goes, when you have a wife, you have split loyalties. You have a wife that you are to take care of and a God that you're to be listening to. And it gets hard. It sometimes gets very hard. And so here we see, I think that she didn't, didn't, didn't live because we don't see anything else about her going with him. Doesn't seem like he's... Dis disappointed by leaving her behind. So I just think, you know, it's something I think when I saw that is that she died. I can't prove it, and I was trying to find any, any commentary that referred to this verse, and they all ignored verse 20. All the ones I looked at ignored verse 20 Com completely like it was totally irrelevant. And in one sense it is. Whether she lived or died is really not all that relevant. Um, while he's living in Egypt, Hedet hears the news that David's dead. All right? Here's the news that David's dead. And then he hears Joab is dead also. I think he was probably more afraid of Joab than he was David at this point because he had been in his country when Joab was playing butcher and killing everybody. And so he finds out that the arch enemy of his kingdom is dead. The one that had killed off all, almost all the males, that had killed off his father and, and any of his uncles in battle, he's dead. And he goes to Pharaoh and says, I want to return to my land. Now, and you could almost picture this. How, number one, how bold this is. This is the man who has taken him into his household, basically made him royalty accepted his son as his grandson, letting him play with the other kids, in the, has given him a home, has provided food for him. He's not even having to go out and earn his food. He is spoiled royalty and being treated as such. And he goes to Pharaoh and says, uh, uh, hi, father-in-law, you know, or dad, uh, brother-in-law, you know, I'm really happy for all you've done, but I've got I to go back and take my territory. David's dead. Joab's dead, and I'm going to go fight Solomon and take my territory back. And the question that Pharaoh asks him is, what have you lacked from my hand? What are you missing? What, have, what, what is it that you don't have? And his answer is nothing but let me go anyway. 
you know, and it's kind of hard to, you know, you wonder, why is he doing this? And yet, how many times do we as Christians do the same thing? God has given us everything that we need, and we turn to God and say, God, I, I think I need to go do such and such. And you can almost picture God looking down at us and saying, why, what are you lacking? What is it that you're lacking that, that you need to do this for? You know, he could have, at this point, I think he could have named anything he wanted from Pharaoh. You know, hey, if I just had this, I'd be really happy. Pharaoh probably would have given it to him. But at this time, I think he also, Pharaoh also recognizes he has royal blood in him. He wants his kingdom. He wants his kingdom. We are of the royal family, and we have a kingdom, which is one of the things that makes it hard for us in this world. Because this world is not our home. No matter how comfortable we can get in it, no matter how nice it may seem at times, this is not home. And we are always looking for home, heaven, when, where we will be with God, with perfect bodies, with perfect mindsets, without sin, without evil, where we will have our ruling in the kingdom of God for eternity. That is our longing, or should be our longing. We have a home in heaven. This is not our home. We cannot get satisfied in this world. If we get satisfied in this world, we're settling for less than we're supposed to have. Hadad is basically going to Pharaoh and saying, you know, he could have actually said, there is one thing I, I miss. I, I have to have my kingdom. I have to try to take my kingdom. Pharaoh would have understood that. He would have, because he's a king. And he knows what it would be like to not have a kingdom. He would have understood it, in this, but he says nothing. I'm not, I, you're providing all of, my, all of my needs are being met. But he says, I still have to go. Still have to go. God calls us often times to get off of our butts and do things that may shake us up. Moses. Moses was happy and content being married to Sephora, watching his father-in-law's sheep, you know, very happy doing very small things. And God says, hey, Moses, you're going back to Egypt. Uh -uh, I can't go back there. I'm wanted. Uh, you're going, I want you to go back to Egypt to deliver the people. Nope, tried that. I got in trouble. I want you to go back to Egypt. Eventually, he goes back to Egypt. Jonah, told to go to Nineveh says, nope, not going to go to Nineveh. I'm going the exact opposite way. <laughs> I'm going to Tarshish on this ship. God brings him back to deal with Nineveh. God oftentimes brings us back. Peter denies Jesus three times and doesn't want to have anything to do with the risen Jesus. Jesus is risen. I denied him three times. He'll never, he's never going to forgive me. He's not going to He's not going to accept me. I'm going back to, to, to Galilee, and I'm going to go fishing. And Jesus went back and called him and says, you're my servant. I've got a plan for you. Saul of Tarsus actively trying to kill Christians, and God calls him. What is God calling us to do that's outside our comfort zone? You know, part of what I was talking about on Sunday, we all have a cross to bear. And that cross is going to take us out of our comfort zone and put us into things that we don't think we could ever do. And it's fun when I talk and listen to you guys and people in the church that talk about, I never could picture myself doing this. I never thought I'd ever do this. And it's God growing us, putting a cross on us and saying, I've got something more for you. Get out of your comfort. Let's take you in deeper coming in deeper into relationship with God and a little deeper and a little deeper and God is saying, I don't want you to get satisfied. Hadad was not satisfied in Pharaoh's home. You know, he's, he's an ungodly person, but it's the same picture for us. God doesn't want us just sitting on our laurels being satisfied with yesterday's bread. He says, I've got new things for you. I've got new mercies for you. I've got new truth for you to live in. Step out, go forward, do more. You know, go, go out and step out in faith into, step out of the boat and walk on the water 
And we're going, oh, God can't do that. That's scary. God says, I want you out here. I want you out here walking on the water. All right, God. I want you to do things that you would never imagine doing. You know, most people, when they're first called to, to teach, are afraid to death of teaching. They're going, don't know enough. Don't, not ready there. And God says, just step out. Step out of the boat and do it. You know, God, you, you want me to talk to those people over there? <laughs> uh, yes, I want you to talk to those people over there. Oh, no. Step out of the boat and go over there and talk to them. Walk in faith and say, God has said to do it. I'm going to step out and do it. All right. Lord, we just ask you to bless this time as we have had. Ask you, Lord, to help us to grow in you. Lord, give us the gumption to step out when you ask us to step out and the faith to be able to walk in what you would have us to walk in. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10.9-8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this. God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.